There are certain situations in life in which what we need to do seems to be painfully obvious. It's a no-brainer. That is, we don't have to give it a great deal of thought. The choice is obvious, clear, plain as the nose on your face, as it, as it were. Well, in reality, there is no such thing as a no-brainer in life. I had a situation in my own life almost 40 years ago. I was in a situation where I had to make a decision. And eventually, I came to the place where I thought it was a no-brainer. I was then the assistant pastor at the Reading Biofellowship Church, and I was wrestling with the question, what did God want next for me? And there were two choices before me. One was to remain at Reading as an assistant and pursue my doctorate at Westminster Seminary, or to become a preaching pastor somewhere else. As I was thinking, praying about it, two opportunities presented themselves. Lebanon Biofellowship Church approached me concerning candidating to be the next pastor here at Lebanon. At the same time, I had made an application at Westminster Seminary for their doctoral program. During the candidating process at Lebanon, I received in the mail a word from Westminster that I was accepted in their program. I had people praying for me, and I had an individual come to me and was so sure that God wanted me to be at Westminster and to pursue a doctoral program that that person offered to pay virtually all of my way. Pretty clear leading, wouldn't you say, of the Lord? And so the very next day, after having that conversation with an individual, Brother Leroy Herb called me and said that they were extending an invitation to me to be pastor at the Lebanon Biofellowship Church. Well, I'd already made up my mind. It was clear what God wanted me to do, and I said, thank you, but uh, I, I wasn't going to be pursuing uh, the pastorate at Lebanon at that time. Well, in the meantime, we were having a series of uh, meetings on uh, each uh, Sunday night, we had a spiritual life week, and uh, Dr. J. Oswald Sanders was the speaker. And uh, it just so happened, <laughs> the next day, he came into my office and sat down and, and uh, began to talk with me and wanted to get to know me a little better and uh, asked me what I was going to do with my future. And uh, I said that uh, I was going to be going to Westminster Seminary and uh, pursuing my doctorate. He said, well, what does God want you to do with your life? I said, well, God wants me to be preacher. My main calling in life is to preach his word. He said, well, that's interesting. He said, uh, how often do you get to preach here? I said, well, not very often, only when the pastor goes on vacation. He said, oh, but God wants you to go to seminary and uh, pursue a doctorate. He said, I guess you've had no opportunities to preach. And I said, well, a church did offer me the opportunity. Oh, that's interesting. God wants you to preach. You were given an opportunity to preach. You chose not to preach. And the more I started to think about them, the more convicted I became and realized that uh, I thought I'd made a pretty big mistake. And uh, it wasn't such a no-brainer after all. I should have given it much more prayer and consideration. But God in his grace and in his sovereignty, well, Leroy Herb called me back and he said, uh, is that no, a sure no? And I said, no, that no is a yes. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I came and uh, I'm so thankful. And as I think about it, how different life might have been if I uh, had gone to Westminster. Uh, I think there would have been a tremendous temptation for me to enter into uh, teaching at a seminary level, 
uh, there are opportunities there as well. But uh, this is what God has called me to do. He's called me to preach his word. Well, today we are in a situation in the book of 2 Samuel in which Nathan finds himself having to make a decision which is a no-brainer. David wants to build a temple for God. Nathan says, great, go for it. David desires to honor the Lord by building a temple to the Lord. What could be a better aspiration? What could be a better way of serving God? And so Nathan says, go for it. The only problem was he hadn't consulted the Lord. So this morning, we want to look at uh, this seemingly no-brainer and not just focus on the fact that Nathan didn't ask the Lord, but, but what was the Lord doing? Why didn't the Lord want David to build a temple is, is what I really want to focus on this morning. But first, we look at Nathan's encounter to this no-brainer. David views it as inappropriate for the work of God, to, for the ark of God to dwell in a tent while he's dwelling in a cedar house. And so he wants to build a temple for God. The situation is that David was living in the house that he had built, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and David finally was free from fighting wars, the end of verse 1, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, although that rest was not permanent, and that's very important to understand too in this overarching purpose of God. For in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, and after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methag Mama out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab. It goes on and on. So there's still a lot of wars and, and fighting that David has to do, but at this present time, there's rest. There's rest. And David has an idea that he wants to run by the prophet Nathan. So David is to be commended for that. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, and David begins by recounting how blessed he is of the Lord. David lived in a beautiful house. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see how I dwell in the house of cedar, uh, this magnificent home. In contrast, the ark is housed in a mere tent. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. That seemed totally inappropriate. David living in this beautiful home and God's ark dwelling in a tent. Now, Nathan interrupts David at this point. Nathan does not need to hear any more. Nathan knows where this is heading. And Nathan is thrilled with what David wants to do. David never even says specifically to Nathan that he wants to build a temple for the Lord. He doesn't get that far. Nathan gets it. And he's fully on board. Verse 3. He says, go, do all that is in your heart. Go for it, David. Fulfill your heart's desire. It's a wonderful thing. And furthermore, Nathan states that the Lord is on board too. End of verse 3. For the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. That's great. Wonderful idea. Exactly what you ought to do. Again, for Nathan, it's a, it's a no-brainer. He doesn't even have to ask God about this. He doesn't even have to hear it all out. What could be better than for David to build a temple for God? Well, to David's credit, he consults Nathan, looking for godly advice and help. However, Nathan 
does not ask the Lord what David should do. What I want to think about this morning is why not? Why not? Why doesn't Nathan think that he needs to consult the Lord? Why is it a no-brainer? Well, that's not hard for us, I think, to, to grasp. Of course he should build God a temple. Nathan can think of no good reason why God would not want David to build a temple for the Lord. And by the way, in the book of Deuteronomy, it alludes to a time that there's going to be a temple. So there's nothing inherently wrong with a temple, it would seem. We can readily see how Nathan would have reached such a conclusion. David's motive is an honorable one. He wants to see God honored and glorified. David's thinking was logical. Look what God had done for David. He's ascribing glory and praise to God for his house and all that God had given him. Wasn't it appropriate for David in return to want to express this appreciation and thanksgiving by doing something wonderful for God and building him an even more magnificent house than what David was living in? How could that be wrong? How could that be wrong? Why wouldn't God want David to build a temple? Have you ever thought about that? What was inherently wrong about it? It's easy to focus on Nathan. But why did God say no? Why did God say no? I think what's the most important element here is that Nathan cannot imagine any reason why David shouldn't build a temple for God. Well, there is a reason. But there is a reason. And that's what we want to focus on in our text. God reveals that it is inappropriate for the ark to dwell in a temple at the present time. God does not want David to build God a temple. What were David and Nathan missing? Well, God immediately addresses the issue with Nathan, verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. That very same night that he says, go for it, God appears to Nathan and uh, gives him a word. God has a message to David. God does not want David to build a temple. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Did you ever wonder why God did not want David to build a temple? Well, you know, it's easy to say that that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. The answer is obvious. It's given to us in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. If you know your Bible, you know the answer to that already. 1 Chronicles 28, verses 2 and 3 state, the king David rose to his feet and said, this is... David speaking to the people and accounting what took place. Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. There it is. David's a man of war, he shed blood. 
He's not allowed to build the temple. Move on. Move on. One might say that is the reason. That is a reason. It is not the reason. It is one among several reasons. Now, now here's a very important lesson in how we study the scriptures. Just like in the Gospels, we have parallel accounts of the same events. So too in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, we have parallel accounts of certain events. In these parallel accounts, we have both similarities and dissimilarities. Both the similarities and dissimilarities are extremely important. The dissimilarities bring our attention to different aspects of the same event and account. They are intended to bring a fuller picture of what is taking place. It gives us more detail. It gives us more information. And there's a great danger for those of us who know our Bibles pretty well. And that is to jump to conclusions. Because we know our Bible pretty well, it's easy to say, I know this. I understand this. I've read this before. I've seen it before. It'd be real easy because I've done it. It'd be real easy to look at this passage and say, well, the reason that David isn't allowed to build the temple is because First Chronicles tells us that he's a man of war, he's a man of blood. That's the answer. Let's move on. But we can never approach the scriptures from that no-brainer attitude. We must always go back afresh and look at a text and take the time and the diligence and the work to work through the passage that you're in and not jump to another passage to get your answer right away. Now, there are important points when we have to bring in other passages to, to fill out the picture, but you start with the passage that you are in. And if we don't do that this morning, we lose an incredibly beautiful and important picture of which God is teaching us about the tabernacle and the temple. In our account, there is no mention of what is told to us in 1 Chronicles. Rather, there's a whole entirely different reason that's given to us in this passage. And it's easy to miss. And God is going to unfold that reason for David and for Nathan and, of course, for us. God unfolds his reasoning as to why David should not build a temple for God what David and Nathan were missing. Here's the message that Nathan is to give to David. The Ark of the Covenant has never dwelt in a house or temple up until that time, verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in a tent so that God would be on the move with his people. Verse 6. 
I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Ralph Earl Davis writes this, and I quote, you see what Jehovah is saying about himself? He is the God who travels with his people and all their topsy-turvy, here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they pilgrim on their way to the land of promise? So is he the pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey with them. The reason that God had decided to dwell in a tent was to represent his presence with his people. And as his people moved, the tent moved. And he was with his people. God never commanded anyone up until the time of Solomon to build God a temple, verse 7. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Have I ever given you the impression that that's what I wanted you to do? Remember, the tabernacle was built at God's command. When Moses was on the top of the mount, God told Moses what to do. He gave him a heavenly vision of what this tabernacle was to look like. God said, did I ever tell you to build a temple? God goes on to say that there will be a time in which a temple will be built, but, but now is not the time. There will be a time in which the temple is built, but now is not the time. So he gives us a better understanding of what is going on. God made the lead, David the leader over God's people, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. God had been with David as God had been with the people. Verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And God says to David, I will make you great at the end of verse 9. I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And don't miss this. God will give his people a secure place in which to dwell. They will one day no longer be on the move. Not only will they no longer be on the move, but they are going to be in a time of great rest and peace and prosperity. And God speaks of this security repeatedly in verse 10. Notice the words. First, he says in verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Plant them. That's the first word of security. They're going to they're be rooted. They're going to be grounded. 
That's where they're staying. Okay, no more of this wandering around the wilderness, no more of this, this journeying. Boom, they're going to be here. They're going to be in the promised land. And in particular, he's talking about Jerusalem. I will plant them. Secondly, they will dwell in their own places. Verse 10, so that they may dwell in their own place. They will not be unsettled, verse 10, but they will dwell in their own place. Now these words, and be disturbed no more, right? And then fourthly, it will, no, it will no, not be as it was before when they were harassed by their enemies. In the end of verse 10, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. They were always fighting, raiding forces. They, they were always coming under oppression. They were always fighting these, these battles. And God says, that's going to come to an end. It's not going to be like that anymore. I'm going to give peace. And you're going to dwell in security and safety, and you're not going to have to be looking over your shoulder. You're not going to have to be dealing with these raiding bands. But that's future. <laughs> Chapter 8, we're already back to David fighting the enemies. You'll no longer have to worry about their enemies, verse 11. From that time, I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will give you rest from all my enemies. Again, Ralph Earl Davis says this. We have a glimpse now why Jehovah wants no cedar temple yet. He must make a secure place for Israel to dwell first. He will not rest so he gives rest to his people. You see how astounding condescension of our Lord God here. How can this revelation fail to overwhelm us and move us to adoring tears? I have been traveling around in a tent with all the sons of Israel, end quote. God's Faithfulness in being with his people is far more important than building a temple. And more significantly, God's dwelling in the, the tent with his people is far more glorious than any temple that David could build or Solomon could build. And we know all the monies and all the riches and all the Grandeur that went into that temple. But it is no more grander than God's dwelling in a tent with his people. The God who dwells is the important element. And David failed to see the beauty of that. And Nathan failed to see the beauty of God dwelling in a tent. They thought it beneath God when it was fitting for God, appropriate for God, teaching his people what he wanted them to know about himself. And now as the text unfolds, we see the steps that God is 
going to take to provide security for his people. How this peace is going to come about. How this safety from the enemies, etc. Starting at verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now we have a play on words. David wants to build God a house. God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. This house that God is going to build David is not a physical house. David already has that, verse 1. God will give David a family dynasty. Verse 12. New days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. God will make Solomon's kingdom firm. The end of verse 12. And I will establish his kingdom. Here he's referring to Solomon. When the kingdom is secure... Then it will be time for the temple to be built, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. There will be a time for the temple to be built, but, but now is not the time. God will establish Solomon's kingdom securely, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Sin will not be able to destroy it. Solomon will not lose his kingdom because of his sinfulness. Verses 14 and 15. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Before Solomon even is born, God says, I will raise him up, he'll be a king. No matter what iniquity he does, I'm never taking the kingship away. Time will not exhaust it. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this ultimately, ultimately, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now we could go to Chronicles and we could unpack all of this theologically, but, but I wanted to make a bigger point here this morning. So I'm just telling you it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who comes from the lineage of David, etc. In Luke chapter 1, in the birth announcement, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, he says this. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. And he shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So this ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ, who is going to reign forever and ever and ever. 
Then we have the book of Revelation and all of that. There's a lot of unpacking there. But there's the promise. It's going to be fulfilled. Has been fulfilled. Jesus is born. Jesus is the king. Now here comes the significance of waiting for the temple to be built. God will not dwell in a permanent house until his people are secure. The beauty of the tabernacle is that as long as his people are not firmly settled, God will not, well, God will be on the move with them. Again, Ralph Davis says this, this is only a pale glimpse of the condescension of the covenant God. God who will not enjoy rest until he gives the rest to his people. God who stoops down to share the hardships of his people. The God who is not ashamed to say he has been traveling around in a tent with them. See how close he is to you. And now I want to go a step beyond what Ralph Davids does. And I want to talk to you about the greater lesson of Christ's condescension towards us. In John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, was God. All things were made by him, without him was anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men, etc., etc. It describes the pre-incarnate Christ and his relationship in the Godhead. <clears throat> and then it says this, John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word for dwelt, the Greek word for dwelt, is the word for tabernacle. The word that's used when the tabernacle is described in the book of Hebrews. Literally, it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us, lived among us, experienced what we experienced. Jesus is the very embodiment of God. In Matthew chapter 123, the angel says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. God with us. That God entered humanity. That God came down from heaven. God came down from his throne. God came down from his glory. God came down from his place of prominence to dwell among us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. He was rich in glory. He was rich in glory. In the book of Philippians, it says this, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men. He humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. The time of his exaltation is coming. But first, he had to die. And the reason he had to die was for his people. Since Christ secured a place for us, he could then go to his place of glory. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me and before the foundation of the world. I'm doing a Sunday school class on Jesus, the meek and lowly, and hoping to unpack so much more of this to you, but Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And the result is you will find rest for your souls. Rest. He is meek and lowly so that his people can have rest. God is dwelling in the tabernacle so his people can have rest. He became poor. The angels, speaking to the shepherds on that night, a verse that we all know so well. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. It's a sign here. Don't miss it. This baby's laying in a manger. Not in a palace. Not where you'd expect the king to be born. Not even in a normal home. He's lying in a manger. In order to come to redeem a people, to give them peace, steadfastness, security. Jesus identifies with his people. Again, just an easily overlooked thought. In the beginning of Luke. And a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And everyone went to his own city to be registered. And Joseph and, and Mary rose up, and, and you know the rest of the story. It wasn't just Joseph and Mary's life that was upset by this decree of Caesar. Everybody's Life was messed up, and everybody had to go to their own home, their background. It isn't just Mary and Joseph that are on the hiking trails that day. They're all going. And the reason that there's no room for the inn is because of all the people that have come to Bethlehem to register. It's no coincidence. Jesus came to identify with his people. And all their sufferings, and all their displacements, in the smallest of ways, 
But this is the glory. This is the greatness of who Jesus is. He's not like any other king. That's why David is not to be like any other king. That's why we are to be so different from the people around us because the God that we serve is so different. For he delights not in the things in which we delight. And so on the triumphal entry, we have say to the daughter of Zion, Behold your king. Look at your king. He's coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Look at your king. Look at your king. Before Christ is exalted, he meets the needs of his people. He dies on the cross before he is exalted. And as he dies on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't understand. They don't understand. They're mocking him. If you were the Christ, come down from there. That's what you would do. If you had power, if you were say you were, you wouldn't let people spit on you. You wouldn't let people put crowns of thorns on you. You wouldn't be hanging on a cross. That's not what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would do. But it's exactly what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords did. We started out with a no-brainer. David wanted to bring glory to God. That's a great thing. That's a great thing. Sounds great, is great. Nathan agreed. What could be better than wanting to bring glory to God? Nothing. Thing, except that they failed to see God's glory. They failed to see that they weren't improving on God's work and position and status. David could never build anything that was more glorious than God dwelling with his people. There would become a time, but now wasn't it. Now wasn't it. Not until Solomon's kingdom's established. Not until there's peace. Not until there's no more fighting, no more war. Not until his people are prospered. Then will come the time. Then will come the time. Lessons. David wanted to do something great for God. God was, in fact, doing something great for David, something far better than David dwelling in a house of cedar. God was doing something great for David, but not just for David, but for the nation. God had, David had failed to see the beauty of what God was doing, the true beauty of God dwelling in the tent. Do we see the beauty of Christ being born in a manger? Does that really impact us? so that we could share in his glory. What a glorious future God has prepared for us. Let me bring this to full conclusion. Book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That first heaven, that first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will dwell with them in presence. Fullness of presence. Fullness of glory. These famous words in context. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I know we hear it at funerals all the time, but that's not the time. Now's not the time. It's coming. It's coming. But don't miss the association. Don't miss when the grandeur of God is fully displayed. There will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. There will be no more suffering. It is gone when his glory is fully seen. And that's future. That's future. Listen, this goes on. And I saw no temple in the city. Read that again. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no more night there. They shall bring it the glory and the honor of the nations. There will be no more temple. God will dwell there. And what will be the beauty? The nations will bring the glory into it. It will be the praise, the honor, the rejoicing, the thanksgiving of the people for all that God has done for us. The beauty of our worship is to say, Worthy art thou, O God. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and riches and blessings. Our worship isn't just, isn't just showing up. It's a true recognition of how blessed we are. David looked at his house, his physical house, and came to the realization how blessed he was. God says to David, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. Our material blessings, our physical blessings, they, they are things for which we should give thanks. 
But the greatest blessing is to be in his presence forever and ever and ever and to enjoy that peace, that blessedness, that removal of tears, that removal of sorrow, to be dwelling secure forever and ever and ever. David meant well. Nathan meant well. They couldn't imagine any reason why the temple shouldn't be built. Why they shouldn't honor and glorify God in that way. They failed to see. In reality, in building the temple at that time was dishonoring to God. We had not told them to build it. It was dishonoring to God for they failed to see the grace and goodness of God. They, they failed to see what they had in the tabernacle. They failed to see how beautiful and glorious God was. What an irony. And it, it is an irony. They wanted to glorify God, but they failed to see the glory. My, 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 how we have to guard ourselves in seeking to glorify God that in actuality we dishonor God because of all the no-brainer decisions we make, because it's so obvious what we ought to do. We need to constantly be asking God, God, what would you have for us? How can we glorify you? One of the ways that we can glorify God is by taking on the image of Lord Jesus Christ. God made us in his image in Genesis 1. Let us make men in our image after our likeness. What is that likeness? What is that image? Meekness and lowliness. Meekness and lowliness. Becoming a servant to others. Dwelling with people. Going through what they go through. Identify with the sinful. Identifying with the needy. I don't know what else to say. I just can tell you how meaningful this was to me as I as I looked through this passage and I thought about. God dwelling with his people in a tent and Jesus coming to dwell among us. Reflect on Jesus, his life. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the earth have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He identified with the homeless. Our Father, help us. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us to worship you with thankful hearts, grateful for all that you've done for us, thankful for your identification with us. Thank you that you sent your son into the world in a manger for your people. Jesus said, as I have been sent in the world, so send I you.
Lord, help us to take on the attitude and mind of Christ. Help us not to seek advancement. Help us not to seek reputation. Help us not to seek men's glory. But Lord, help us to seek your true glory. Work in us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.